There is a two-word phrase in the first section of today's uh, scripture that we're going to be reading, and then there's a, another two-word two phrase in the second section that we need to pay at attention to. The first two-word phrase is, we have. We, we need to pay attention to that phrase when it comes up, we have. And then the second two-word phrase is, let us. We have, let us. So, so you're going to see the scripture saying this what, as we read this morning, we have, we have, we have, and then it's going to be, so let us, let us, let us. And so that's kind of how this text breaks down. We need to pay attention because it's going to unpack for us how we live out what we've talked about over the past several weeks. And if you've been here for the past several weeks, we've been stuck in some severe repetition. It's, it's like the Hebrew, writer of Hebrews is, is just not going to allow, allow us to get out of it uh, because literally for three chapters, he says the same things over and over again in different ways. And, and he just pounds his point into us that the old tabernacle and its laws and systems have gone away and that the new covenant of grace and the sacrificial of death that covers all our sins is into place. So let's pick it up in Hebrews chapter 9, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 19. This is what it says. Therefore, brothers, since, what does it say? We have, there's the first one. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now I'm going to stop there because that's the, the first we have. I want, to, I want us to talk about what he's referencing. You know, now several weeks ago, and, and many of you were here, but if, if you weren't, we'll give you a little bit of review. We, we talked about how the tabernacle was a picture of how things are in the deepest level of the universe. So the fact that you and I were created by God to operate in three different worlds. You remember when we talked about that? We, there's the world of matter, the world of, this, of senses, and we do very well in that world. Like, like most of you have eaten something today. I had a donut this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for that. You've tasted something. You, you feel the clothes that are, that are on, on you today. And a lot of you, maybe you came in today and you've, you've rolled your windows down uh, in your car and you just felt that cool air blowing in. We live in this world of matter, a world that can be seen, tasted, touched, felt, uh, uh, smelled. <laughs> Sometimes that's not a good thing, but, but anyway, uh, it's here. And then there's the world of the mind, and, and this is thoughts and emotions, and this is kind of art is, is what is birthed out of the, out of, uh, out of the mind, and, and the majority of us do uh, really well in, in, in two of those worlds. The, the problem is that we can be very successful in those two worlds and still have something eating away from, at us because we were created not only to live in the worlds of matter and the mind, but we were created to live in the world of the spirit. And this one is very, very difficult for us to live in. We do very well at matter. Most of us at least do very well in the mind, but most of us struggle intensely with the spirit. And the tabernacle modeled this idea. There was the outer court that everybody could go into. It was the world of matter. And that's, that's the way it is in the world. There's everybody that lives in the world of matter. And, and, but then there was a holy place after that, that where they kept the scrolls and only the priests could go in there and, and the Levites could go in there. And that was the world of knowledge, the world of the mind. But then there was the holy of holies, which only the high priest could go into once a year. This was a place where the manifest presence of God was and, and it was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by this thick veil and no one could go in, in there other than the high priest uh, 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 without the penalty of death. And so it's, it's just there to illustrate 
that this holy place, that this world of the Spirit, where you and I, in, in which you and I have been created to walk, it's impossible for us to get into that without some outside help. So now go back and read this with me again, because you'll see what's happening. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy of holies, that place the world of the Spirit by the blood of Jesus. And he, he's saying here, I've done away with the tabernacle system, the, the veil has been torn, and now everybody who wants to come in can come in by the blood of Jesus. That's what he's saying. And, and when we talk about being made whole, we talk about wholeness and healing here a lot. That's what we're talking about. Through Jesus, we are not condemned to live only in the world of matter and only in the world of the mind, but the spirit, the world of the spirit has finally been opened up to us. So, so now you and I can enter into the holy place, not by our own works, not by our own efforts, but only by the blood of Jesus. So let's keep reading. We have another we have coming up. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the cu curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since, what, what are those words? And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about verse 18. In verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 10, it says that, God basically says, I'm no longer taking offerings. And that was God's way of saying, whatever you want to bring to me to pay for your sins, I'm not interested in that. The debt has already been paid by the death of Jesus Christ. And, and whatever little religious action you want to bring to lay at my feet, he says, I'm not interested in that. It's already paid for. Your sin is paid for. Not because you do this or you don't do that, but because Christ died on the cross. Period. So every time we get into that place where we're going, Lord, I'll do this for you and I'll stop doing that and I'll quit this thing over here. And we lay it on the altar sort of in penance saying, well, I'm going to try to make things right with God. God looks down at the altar and says, uh, says to us, what, what's this for again? What's, well, I'm a bad person. And God says, well, absolutely, uh, you, you are. I've known that for hundreds of thousands of years, but I've already paid for it. Well, but, but I really blew it yesterday. And he says, yeah, I, I know that. In fact, I knew that when I died on the cross several thousand years ago. I, I knew that. I paid for it then. It's paid for. So take this, this petty stuff. You know, it's really cute, though. It's, but take this stuff. I don't want it. I'm not taking any more offerings. I've had the one offering that I want. And that's the offering of the blood of Jesus. And that's what's being referenced here. Since we have a great high priest who has taken care of our sins, that's what he says. That's what the high priest did. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with a bowl of blood representing the, the sins of Israel and, and he would make atonement for the sins of all, all the people of Israel. And that's what Jesus did with an offering of his own blood. You can read in Hebrews what Jesus did during those three days when he was in the grave. One of the things he did was he took an offering of his own blood into the real Holy of Holies, into the very presence of the Father, and he took that as an offering to say, this is to pay for the sins of all of those scoundrels down there. He, I don't think he used the word scoundrels, but, but that's what I chose to use. And, and that's why it says, he says, I don't want your gifts I've already done it. I, I am your high priest. My blood paid the price. I'm not taking offerings anymore. It's paid for. In other words, you could look at it this way. He's saying, what could you possibly bring 
that's more precious than my blood. So, so this is what we've been talking about for, for several weeks. I mean, this is it. And, it's a, and in a simple two-verse summary, this is what happened. The tabernacle and its rules and laws have, been, have given way, and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ have taken over. Nevertheless, here's the problem. In spite of the freedom he offers, we often have a really, really hard time living in his grace. I think a great way to explain this would, would be through my phone. I, I never bring my phone up here. I should have brought it today as an illustration, but I never bring it up here because I know that I got enough knuckleheads in this church that if somebody sees the outline, outline, outline of my phone in my pocket, somebody in this church is going to call it in the middle of the sermon. I just know, I just know how you all work. And so, but if I had my phone, you know, phones are amazing. It used to be you had a phone and you just made phone calls, right? And for those that are young, they used to be attached to the wall Either, either mounted on the wall or had a wire attached to the wall. And, and you had to get, you, how many remember those super long curly cords so that you could, you could stretch it from the kitchen all the way to the back part of the house or your bedroom. And, you know, and then they'd get all tangled up. It was a whole different world. But now phones are amazing. I mean, my phone has my, my calendar on it. It has email on it. I get texts on there. All this stuff. I'm, all my banking information, I take care of all the stuff on, on there. I mean, I could, probably, I could probably use my phone. It would probably make a cup of coffee for me if I drank coffee, you know. And, or, or, I mean, I'm pretty sure I could... I could uh, call up an airstrike on Cuba or something with it. I mean, you can do everything with them. I can call the United Nations into session. I mean, you can do anything you want. It's a, they're pretty cool gadgets now. But in the end, here's the truth. For me, and I think for most of us here, I would say most of us at least, we're not really using all of the features that our phone has. I'm not, I'm not getting the fullness of the device. I can tell you, I might even be able to tell you everything that it does, but I'm not really using it to its fullness. And, and I think when it comes to grace, it's kind of like that. A lot of us kind of get it and we can talk about it and we can say this is grace and this is what it's like, but then we find it very, very difficult to actually live in it. And, we, and then as a result, we keep going back to the tabernacle and back to the law because we're not really sure what it means to follow Jesus in this new covenant. It's confusing to us. But the good news is that, that this text is going to try to unpack for us what that looks like to live in this. So since this new thing, since this new covenant has been brought to us by the blood of Jesus, who is our high priest, then let us. So let's see what the let us's are starting in verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, now I'm going to stop there. Uh, let us draw near. Now, this idea of drawing near, traditionally, we often think of uh, church attendance, but this idea of drawing near to God is not a reference to church attendance. Here, I'm going to tell you something that, that we got just a touch of a ring, Chuck. Um, but uh, I'm going to tell you something about, about uh, your relationship with Jesus that you need to understand that is so powerful. You are no closer to God in this room than you were in your car on the way to this room. The presence of the Spirit that you felt earlier 
is no different than the presence of the Spirit that was available that was right there in your car. The, the, the fact of the matter is, God does not hang out here in this building. Like if you showed up here on a Tuesday, he's not going to be in the back room drinking a Dr. Pepper Zero Sugar. You know, that's not what he's going to be doing. This is not where God dwells, right? We call this the house of God, but we only say that because this is a place that has been dedicated to him. But this is not where he lives. In fact, this is really an old argument. Maybe you remember the the, the, the woman at the well. When, when she is co confronted with the truth and the grace of Jesus she immediately, in response, wanted, wanted to make it about location, doesn't, didn't she? She says, you, Jesus, you Jews, you say that, that people should worship in Jerusalem, but our ancestors worshiped on that mountain over there. Which one of us is right? And Jesus says, you're, you're confused. It ain't about place. I don't think he used ain't, but I'm going to use it today. You're confused. It ain't about place. It's about what's in your heart. It's not whether you worship here or there that matters. It's what's going on in here, in your heart. In fact, here's the perfect illustration. I know of, right now I know of several churches that are meeting in buildings that have been renovated, but they used to be bars. So the building, you know, whatever happened, like I know of one church in Texas that the Something happened in the in the the bar had a fire and they half burnt down and a church bought that building and they renovated it and they're meeting in there and so uh, I love that because one of the cool things that's happening is now there are men and women who are coming to know the Lord they're worshiping in that place where they used to engage in debauchery. Now here's the thing: God's not in heaven looking down at that building at that place that used to be a bar and saying. Uh, Sorry, I, I can't go in there. You know, I, I'm sorry, I just can't walk into that place. That's, that's a bad place, I can't go in there. Because here's the thing, places are not holy. People made clean by the blood of Jesus are holy. So, so when this says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, it's not... Talk, it's obviously it's not talking about church buildings or church attendance. Those things are important. They're wonderful, but that's not what he's talking about here. So I want to talk uh, through this idea of drawing near to God with a, with a sincere heart, with a true heart for a few moments because it gets really, really difficult and it gets cloudy when you weigh it against the tabernacle because we have these ideas. We hear somebody saying, this is how I draw near to God, and then we turn it into a list of rules and we say, this is how you do it. So I want to talk about over, over the years myself, I have tried to figure out what it means to let Jesus have my heart and to not just live by the rules. I grew up in church. And so there's something in me that always wants to live by the rules. And, and there's nothing wrong. And, and by the way, I'm going to say this again, but there are there, the Bible makes it clear. There are things that are absolutely wrong and things that are absolutely right. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about the rules of religion, the way we say, well, you're supposed to look this way and dress this way and do this and don't do that and that sort of thing. But, but, but I've tried to figure out in my life how to not just live by the rules, but to really walk with him on a daily basis and, and have this real relationship with him. You know, and, and I found it personally unbelievably difficult because if you're like me and you've grown up in church, you get trained with this idea of this is what we're supposed to look like. This is how it's supposed to work. This is how it's supposed to feel. This is how it's supposed to work itself out in your life. And, and the problem with that is when it comes to churches and religion, it always changes. You know, because I remember in my childhood, 
you know, you couldn't go to movie theaters or, or you, you know, if Jesus returned in your movie theater, then you, you don't get to go to heaven, that kind of thing. Anybody remember those days? And, you know, now we, we have our own movies in there. So it's like, <laughs> what do we do with that? So uh, anyway, uh, as for me, I kept trying to do this thing that I was taught to do, and it was very, very fruitless and lifeless to me. Any other testimonies? You know what I'm talking about. And when it comes to a devotional life and a relational life with Jesus, here's the thing. This is the conclusion I've come to. The question is not, is this right or wrong? We ask that all the time. Is this right? Is this a sin? Should I, can I do it? Should I not do it? That sort of thing. I think we're asking the wrong question because when you ask that question, you're really asking a question of what are the rules? But I think the question we need to ask is what stirs my affections for Jesus? What, when I'm doing it, when I'm around it, when I'm in it, when I'm part of it, what stirs my heart, what stirs my mind and its affections toward Jesus? What, when I'm doing it, makes me want to know and to walk deeply with Christ? Now, here's right off the bat, I want to say I know that for all of us, Drawing near to God with a sincere and a true heart is going to involve the scriptures and is going to involve, for all of us, prayer. So don't, don't say, well, I don't have to do those things because the Bible is very clear. Those are vitally important for us if we want to draw near to God. And so what I'm talking about outside of those things, what are the things that you do? What are the parts of your life that, that cause you to think about God and to ponder him and his greatness that makes you want, it just stirs your affection up for Jesus and say, man, I just want to know him more. I'm going to give you some examples. And these, these are from my life. I'm not saying that they probably won't match yours. Some of them may, some of them may not. But, but an example from my life is, is when I'm with my family. There's just something uh, about hanging out with my kids and hearing them laugh that just seems sacred to me. When, it, when I hear them back in the back of the house in the bedroom and I hear them just make cracking each other up and I'm just sitting there, that just feels like a holy moment to me. Maybe it's because of the fact that my, our, our daughters came so late in our marriage that we didn't think we were going to have any, that, that those moments when they come, I, it's a reminder to me of the power of God and his love and what he's done in our lives. You know, when I spend time with my wife and my girls, I, I, just, I just begin to become overwhelmed with what God has done in my life and how good he has, he has good, been good to me. You know, like, listen, when my girls are, are throwing dad jokes at me, first of all, it makes me feel extremely proud that I've passed that legacy on to them. But there's something about that moment that even a dad joke feels sort of holy to me. It becomes, I become aware of God's presence, of his goodness, that I have this, these relationships. You know, when my girls come up to me and give me an unsolicited hug, you know, when your kids get older, those things are a little more, a little less common. You know what I'm saying? And, or, or when one of them says, hey, hey, dad, you, you want to go get breakfast this morning? Especially when they say, I'll pay. <laughs> then, then I know there is a God, <laughs> you know. Uh, but that just feels sacred. And, and I become more aware of the presence of God in my life. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you some other things. Another thing, and this one's, a, this one's a little weird, may seem a little morbid, but cemeteries. You're like, this is really weird. I know it sounds really morbid, but, but when I walk through a cemetery and I see the grave markers, I begin to think about life and the brevity of life. 
You know, I especially wonder when I walk uh, up and see a, a headstone and there's somebody there that, that died when they were young. And, and I begin to begin to wonder, man, you know, what, what did this person, what did they enjoy? What irritated them? What made them laugh? I, and I start to wonder how they died because people don't normally die when, when they're young. And, and I wonder who loved them and who they loved. And, and in that moment, I just begin to ponder the brevity of life. And I'm reminded again just how precious life really is. And I begin to think about eternal issues. I, I, I guess it just starts making me think about what's really important. There, there, there's another thing. There's something also for me that, about the, the great wonders of nature that stirs my soul. I've been blessed to live in different places. When we lived in Reno, Nevada, I, I, I tell you, there's this, if you've never seen Lake Tahoe, it's just unbelievable. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen or, or I've been able to, I, I, in Georgetown, we lived there on the coast. And so when I stand on the beach and I look out at the vastness of the ocean and the power of the water moving there, or, or when I've stood, when I stood at the, uh, at the rim of the Grand Canyon and looked over that, which by the way, no photographer can ever capture the grandeur of something like that. In those moments, I'm just filled with wonder and awe. And I, I just let myself slow down enough to think about the majesty of a God who could create these things. Just a reflection of who he is. You know what? There's also something about, about really good food that, that makes me think about, I mean, some, now, now we're connecting. I can see this. I sense this. I mean, you think about the God who, who, who came up with the taste of peanut butter and chocolate together. Can I get an amen? amen. Or, or the God who thought up the smell of fresh of bread baking in the oven. You know, I, mean, I just don't know if there's a better smell than that. Or, or the God who thought up the idea of ice cream. Now, see, I'm connecting on a whole new level here. Should have started with this one. But, but, but I think about the fact that God created all these wonderful things for us to experience. And I think how much he must love me. Or, or there's something to me about reading books. You know, I'll be reading a book and at times I just, I just long for the reality that they write about. And I'm drawn into the presence of God in that way. I'm a music guy too, and there's something about music that stirs and moves my soul. It's that moment, and maybe you've experienced it if you really are into music, that moment where, when just the right song comes on and, and I'm just overwhelmed with the knowledge of the presence of God in the room or in the car or wherever I am. And then there's this longing in my heart to walk in that reality of God. There, there's something about those things as, as I go through them. And there's something about the narratives of the scriptures, you know, the stories that are in scripture. Now, now I, I love theology. I love digging into it. I, 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 I love the, the teaching found in the epistles. But, but there is just really something to me about the stories of Jesus's interaction with people. And I can remember when, when, as a teenager, when I first came to know the Lord and he filled me with the spirit and called me into ministry, I remember sitting on my bed in my bedroom as a teenager and I, and, and I was reading the Bible and I was reading through the gospels. And when I get to the words that were written in red and I thought to myself, these were words that Jesus spoke. I remember sitting there and just weeping as I heard him speaking to me. There's something about those moments and there's something about the the absolute flaws in just about everybody in the Old Testament that, that fills my heart with hope that maybe God can use me. Yeah. 
And I'm, I'm trying to live my life not by, is this right or wrong? But does this stir up my affections for Jesus? Does this direct my attention and my love toward Him? And, and, and by the way, I'm not talking about trying to justify wrong behavior by saying it makes me feel close to God. You know, that's what we'll do when you preach a message like this. I'm talking about drawing near to God with a sincere and a true heart. I'm not talking about somebody saying, well, actually, adultery makes me feel very close to Jesus. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're wrong. That's, that's not it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about drawing near with a sincere heart. And listen, as I'm sharing all those things, I would be wrong, and, and it would, I believe it would be sinful, if I told you that you had to draw near to God the same way that I did. Outside, now I can tell you that you're going to need the scripture and you're going to need prayer. But outside of that, it's just all over the place, right? I mean, if I came to you and, and, you, and you said, how do I draw near to God? It would be wrong if I said, listen, you're going to need Spotify, your Bible, and a cemetery. You know, <laughs> That would be weird, first of all, but it would be wrong. For, for me to unpack my devotional pattern on you, that gets us right back to the tabernacle of saying, here's the rules, here's how you have to do it, doesn't it? The question is, what stirs your heart? What stirs your affections for the love of Jesus Christ? And then you pursue those things. But then, then there's the reciprocal question. The other side of the question is, not just what stirs my affections for Christ, but what robs me of my affections for Jesus? What robs your heart from really wanting to know and walk with and experience the fullness of God? For me, once again, I, and I don't expect your list to look like mine, but for whatever reason for me, Vegging out and turning off my mind and watching TV for extended periods of time just absolutely robs me of my ability to think critically. It just does. And so if I, here's what I know, if I watch hours and hours and hours of TV, before I know it, I'm laughing at something that God calls reprehensible. Anybody, anybody been there? Have you ever woke up and found yourself in that place? And, or maybe you've been like that, you know, maybe it's a different way. Uh, uh, there have been those moments when I have just entered completely into some fantasy land in my head, wishing and pretending that I was Jack Bauer. <laughs> and if you don't know, I can't help you on that. Um, it's a really good show. Uh, but, 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 but for me, so watching long hours of television really robs my heart from being able to think critically and, and experience a longing and a desire for God. Another thing is following sports too closely. Man, I've been so guilty of this in the past. I've gotten better. I still have bouts where I struggle with this. But because when I follow sports too quickly, or too closely, I should say, when I follow them too closely, then all of a sudden I care. Right? Why, why should we care? I mean, honestly, in the eternal scope of things, why should we care who wins a football game today? Some of you are like, this is a relief after yesterday <laughs> for all of us, you know, Razorback and Missouri Tiger fans. It's a good, it's a good thing to think about. Honestly, no, think about it. In the eternal scope of things, why should we care? It's a ball. It's 22 young men on a, on a field playing this ball. 
and, and we're not 11 years old, why should we care? And so for me, I, I personally, here's what I'm saying. I cannot start following it too closely because if I do, it will start meaning something to me way more than it should. And when it really shouldn't mean anything in the long run, long run. Does that make sense? I mean, listen, there are times in my life, and my wife will tell you this is true. There were times when I was younger when, when my mood and the, how my day went was going to be determined by whether my team won or lost. That's the kind of power it had over me. That I was miserable to be around if a team that I don't even play for, I'm not employed by them, I have nothing to do with them other than I watch you know, I'm an out of shape guy watching 22 men uh, who desperately need rest, you know, uh, when I desperately need exercise and I'm watching them and that's all there is to it. And, and, and so for me, if I start following too closely, it starts to mean something when it shouldn't mean anything. It's just a game. And fact, in fact, even if your team, like a few years ago, I love, I grew up in Kansas City. I'm a big Chiefs fan. They won the Super Bowl. You know what, it, you know what that means? Nothing. You know why? They start a whole new season the next year and, you, and you're not the champion anymore. Why should it mean anything to, to me? And so for me, this is how I'm, I'm trying to live my life, not just by trying to copy what other people are doing. Now, when I hear guys say, say you know, this is how I do it, you know, there's nothing wrong with testing those things. Often I'll test those things and I'll, I'll go, okay, that's, that's how you do that. Well, let me try that and see if that, what happens to my life. But but, but he wants us to draw near to him with a sincere heart. He wants us to come to him the way that he made us. You know, like, like I have a friend named Jeff who lives in Tennessee, south of Nashville. And he's a, he's a wonderful musician and singer. And he's always playing his guitar uh, whenever I've been around him. And always just sort of engaging the Lord in, in song in that way. Well, listen, that's not happening in my life. It's just not. In fact, if I grab a guitar and say, Lord, I'm going to worship you the guitar, he's going to say, hey, uh, why don't you just put that down? <laughs> you know, because like that doesn't sound the same as when Jeff plays it. Why don't you just lay that down? Uh, but 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 that's that's not happening in my life. And it's not that my way is right and his way is wrong. It's it's that we're both drawing near with a sincere and true heart that this is how God made us. So, so I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to read. I'm going to listen to music that stirs my affections for Christ. I'm going to guard my heart with how much television I, I watch. And sometimes it's hard to do in this world. And, and I'm going to be careful not to care too much about sports. And when, my, when, it starts, when I start caring too much, that, that's a sign to me I need to, I need to back off from this a little bit. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. So now let's look at the fruit of us drawing near to God. Look at the fruit of us pursuing what stirs our hearts and our affections for Jesus and running away from what robs us of those affections. Look, look at this, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now we start to get full assurance that God is who He says He is and that He works having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now what happens is, we, as we draw near and as we pursue those things that stir our affections for Jesus and we're in the Word and we're spending time in prayer 
And then we also begin to shun those things that steal our affections for Jesus. What begins to happen is God begins to change the way we think. You, you should see growth in how you think as you follow Jesus. If you haven't changed the way you think in 20 years, then perhaps you haven't grown for 20 years. You, you don't, by the way, you don't change the way you think and then come to the Lord. That's not the way it works. You come to the Lord and then, and you, and then you have the way you change, the way you think changed by Him. We don't change he says about our conscience, but he also says that washed with pure water, we don't change the way we behave in order to come to Christ. How many of you have ever had somebody say to you something like, well, you know, I'm going to come to church. I just got to get my act together and get some things together. I've always laughed at that because that's like saying, well, I need to take a shower, but I probably just need to get cleaned up first. <laughs> what? No, no. You don't get cleaned up to come to God. You come to God to get cleaned up. We, we don't change the way we, we behave in order to be acceptable to come to Jesus. You can't do that. We come to Christ, who in turn changes the way we think, which in turn changes the way we live. That's the process. This is the reason why people who are alcoholics uh, come to Jesus and then they quit being alcoholics. Right? They don't, quit become, they don't quit being alcoholics and then come to Jesus. That's just not how it plays out. No, when you have something like that, or, you know, you're a drug addiction or something like that, you, you come to Him and He changes your mind. And as He changes your mind, that changes your outward body. It changes the way we act. So, so let us draw near to Him. Let's run toward Him. He, he's opened the gate. He's torn the veil. He's paid the debt for our sins. So let us draw near with a sincere heart. How has He wired you? What stirs your affections for Jesus? What robs you of those affections? And, 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 then, and then let's move on to the next one. We're, we're going to spend very little time on this one because I want to really get, get to, to verse 24. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, is, who promised is faithful. Now, if you remember, our confession from the last five weeks is that Jesus paid it all. He did it all. He paid the penalty for my sin. He took care of it all. That's my confession. So let us hold fast to the confession that Jesus paid it all because if you begin to add to the, to the cross, add anything to the cross, what you're doing is you're beginning to lay the foundation for an arrogant, judgmental, lifeless Christianity. When you add conditions to the cross, when you start saying it's the cross of Christ plus this behavior, or it's the cross of Christ minus this behavior, or it's the cross of Christ plus this devotional, or the cross of Christ minus this action. What you've done is you've actually given us grounds by which we can judge each other sinfully instead of holding fast to the confession that Jesus paid it all. That's what leads to arrogant, judgmental church folk is because they add to the cross and say, well, they're not living this way. They're not doing what I'm doing. And that's what we've done. I am not who I am because of my own effort or my own merit, but by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's our confession. When we hold fast to the confession that Jesus paid it all, 
what happens is we, we don't we, we're not like a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians, they sort of give you a word picture in your mind. They sort of lean up against the cross, pointing at people and saying, hey, you better get right, you dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. But instead of that, we don't stand next to the cross and tell other people that they better get right. Instead, what we do when we understand this is we kneel at the cross and invite others and say, hey, I found mercy. There's room for you too. That's the difference. Let's go to verse 24 because it's a big one for us today. So, since Jesus has torn the veil, since he paid it all, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Let's hold fast to the fact that he did it all for us. And then verse 24. And I love this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, this is a great little message here. Let us figure out how to do life with each other in such a way that we are stimulated forward, that we are pushed on towards more love and more good deeds. And so then the question becomes for us is how? How do I do this? Well, he's going to tell us how in the next verse. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is a common misconception about what church is. Your attendance, I'm going to say this, it may sound off, but I want you to hear it. Your attendance here, no matter how frequent, does not make you really a part of this church. You say, what are you talking about? Well, that's because the church is not a gathering of Christians to listen to preaching. The church is men and women who have covenanted, covenanted with one another and with Christ to do life together. So just, just attending here does not really make you part of this body. Now, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but you, you can come here every week, but doesn't mean you're really part of the family here. You, you might be part of the extended family. You're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the family of God. But listen, until you begin to sow in then you're not really part of the community of the church. You're not really a part of what's going on. And so when you're, when you're all, if all you're doing is coming and sitting and listening, then you're not really a part of the, of the body. You're not taking, it, it, it'd be like what Paul said in Corinthians, where he said that, the, that, the, that, the, that we're like the body of Christ, that eat, we're all different parts of the body. It'd be like you having an arm that says, listen, I'm just content to be here, but I'm not doing anything. And you walk around with a limp arm just because, and so therefore you're, you're not fulfilling, you're not able to do everything that you could do because you have a part of your body that says being here, being part of this, of this body is enough. That's, that's really the essence here, what I'm trying to say. Just attending here does not mean you're really part of the body. Uh, it, it, normally what is preached is that if you attend then you're part of the church and we, we tend to think that we're okay if we just come and sit here and we think that our church is successful if a lot of people come and sit here but that's not success that's barely even a shadow of what it means to be the people of God you know we, we've gone through a lot of changes at Restoration Life Church over the last several years even before I got here some good some bad we, we, we've tried some things that that, that have worked out great in the other areas, times we probably 
tried, maybe it was the right thing, but we moved too quickly and it didn't work out the way we thought it would work out. But, but here's, here's the thing, through all the changes and all the things that have happened, there are, there are some that said, well, I'm, not, I'm out of here, I'm not going to mess with these changes anymore. But, but you know what, there are people in this body who have stayed here and they're still part of this church body, even though some of the changes didn't match their preferences. We're not doing things according to their preference, but, but they're still here. They're still here. And their attitude is, and I've heard some say these type of things, their attitude is, don't cater to me. Just preach the truth and reach peace, people with the gospel. Why would they do that? Why would they stick in a body like that? This is the part we're missing so much in the church in America. They do that and they live that way. They think that way because they understand they have not made a covenant with their personal preferences. They've made a covenant with a body of believers. They desire to spend their lives here in this place with this group of people and there's just something really beautiful, beautiful about that. And it's just, it's just rare now, nowadays, man. I tell you, it's rare. Because today, in the American church culture, everybody's going, here are my needs. Here's what I want. Meet them. And most people today are asking what they can get out of church instead of asking what Jesus wants them to sow into it. And so, so you end up, as a result, you end up with what we have today in much of American culture. You end up with a consumer model for church where there's a billion programs all designed to make you feel good about being there. And there's nothing wrong with programs. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we end up doing all kinds of things and filling our lives with purposeless activity that in the end won't produce the intimacy with Christ that our hearts long for that we were designed for. That's the point I'm trying to make. When church, in response, when the church doesn't offer, when we have this consumer mentality, when the church doesn't offer the program we want, then we're like, well, well, if they don't have one of those, I'm gone. And we see it over and over again. And here's, here's the truth, I promise you. This is absolute truth. It is by serving the bride of Christ and serving the community in which we're planted that maturity and nearness to Christ occurs. Not by having a bunch of bells and whistles. You know, I believe that bells and whistles uh, can, can just sometimes complicate stuff and, and, and they, they can get you off mission, get you off task sometimes, you know, and so you end up starting, whoa, look at that bell. That church's got a, look at that bell, that church's, is that a whistle? That would, whoo, that was a really beautiful, nice sounding whistle. We should, we should get a whistle. Well, that's what we need. We need a whistle. If we had a whistle like that, our church would grow and everybody, or everybody should have a bell like that. And you guys don't have a bell in your church. I wouldn't go there if they didn't have a bell. And so we, we start adding bells and whistles just because we think that's just going to make, be attractive to people. And, 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 and listen, there's nothing wrong with having programs to meet the needs of people. That's not what I'm saying at all, but I'm saying what I'm saying to us today is that the church is not a series of programs. It is a group of people doing life together. Which is why our small groups are so important. It's why overcomers are so important. Because that's a group of people 
doing life together. It's why our connect groups are important because it's, it's a group of people trying to connect at a deeper level to learn how to do life together. The, uh, the, the church is not you attending here. That's not the church. That's not the fullness of Christ. That's not the, the, the thing that he has planned for us. And if that's all the church is to you, then you're, you're not doing it. You're really not living, living this thing out. Do, doing life, the problem is doing life together is messy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We, the, we are a bunch of sinners. We're selfish. And I'm here to tell you, we will fight. If you try to do life together with people in this church, here's one guarantee. I, have, I offer very few guarantees in life, but here's one guarantee that I have for you. If you try to do life together with people in this church, you will get hurt and offended at some point in time. That's the reality of living in a broken world with broken people, we're all sinners. By the way, when you get offended, just don't forget, you probably are going to offend somebody else too, eventually. But, but it's messy. It's messy. You know, that's, there are going to be conflicts. Uh, there, there, there are going to be hurts. There are going to be some things that are called out. It's just going to be messy. Doing, doing life together is important, but it's messy. But, but doing life together, even though it is messy, helps us see ourselves more clearly. Like, like, have you ever found yourself maybe in a small group where you're looking around in the small group meeting and you're like, man, I, you know, I don't even like these people. <laughs> you know, that's it. I'm searching for another one. Or, or, you, or you found yourself in a, in, in going, man, you know, that guy just grates against me. I mean, ev everything about that guy just bothers me. Well, here, here's something to think about. Maybe that's because of him, but maybe that's because of you. Maybe you've got some pride. Maybe your issues are rising to the surface and it's revealing something going on in you. See, because we'll, we'll never see many of those issues in our hearts in isolation. That's why, you know, I always think it's great when young people live together, boys and boys and girls and girls, I want to make clear, clear on that. You know, but, but uh, because what happens when we live together, there, there's going to be conflict. They're going to learn some things about life. Laziness is going to come to the surface, right? That guy never wants to do the dishes. You know, dirtiness is going to come to the surface. Why am I always cleaning up after him? Why? It's because you're living with sinful, broken people. And, but, and there's something beautiful that happens in the collision that is doing life together. As long as we respond, that's the problem, is that we have the conflict, we have the offense, we have those things, and then we don't deal with it biblically, and that's when it blows up and division comes. But if we learn how to handle it the way Jesus said, if we learn how to handle it with biblical uh, response to division, or, or not to division, to offense and to, to hurt, if we learn how to handle it right, instead what happens is we all grow through that process, and we, we learn a greater intimacy in that process, because, you know, listen, Listen, when, when, when there have been times when, when there's been a disagreement with, between my wife and I, especially early on in marriage, when those moments when I finally, when I knew I was wrong, which, which you know, usually it was me, let's be real, and when I knew I was wrong, in those moments when I went to her and I said, listen, I was wrong, would you forgive me? There was a greater intimacy that came out of those moments. But I would never have had. 
there's something beautiful that happens in that collision of doing life together. And married people absolutely know this. There is a sharpening and a collision that occurs in marriage that refines the soul. If you'll recognize it, if you can survive it, if you can deal with it. See, because marriage is, marriage is just another tool the Lord uses to sharpen me. If I'll look at it that way and say, hey, this, this conflict I'm having with my spouse here is really God trying to show me something I need to deal with in my heart. Something amazing occurs when we get together. Scriptures say it like this. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. When we do life together, even, even if you don't realize it, when we do life together, there's something that fuels the soul. And some of you, you know, like being around bigger crowds and other people, you don't like to be around as many people. But listen, doing life together with other people, it fuels the soul. When we do that, there's just something that feeds into the soul when you get to hang out with godly people. And I, listen, I'm not talking about, you know, you just get together and light a candle and sing Kumbaya. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about real life. But there, there's, a, there's this ministry that occurs in the deepest level of the soul the problem is that's a very romantic, beautiful idea, but it, but it has to be fought for. It does not come easily, and there is much to risk. Because to find those places, I have to risk letting you see inside me. The, the idea of encouraging one another that's in the passage is really, really, it's the same idea. It's the same idea. I, encouragement is is not, uh, dear Eric, uh, I'm praying for you today, sincerely, Dave. Now, now that's part of encouragement, but it's much more than that. Real encouragement occurs when you finally take the risk to be known. See, when I finally take the risk to be known and let you see what's inside of me and and allow you get to know me, then I can really receive encouragement from you. But before that, I really can't. Here's what I mean. My, my, my wife and I, we have been married long enough now that, that I cannot hide from her when I'm not doing well. It's always amazing to me. I mean, I walk in, don't even say anything. I don't know if it's how I close the door or whatever, but there have been times I walk in, close the door, and I'm, I mean, I barely walk in the house, and she says, are you all right? And I'm like, I'm fine. But are you Are you all right? I'm fine. You're not. And she, I was like, I was like, how does she know that? It's because she knows me so well that even just looking at my face, she can see the tension. She can see that I'm wrestling with something because she knows me better than anybody else in this world. That's what's being painted here. The, the idea of encouragement is that other followers of Christ would know you so well that they can tell when you need encouragement. And that's not going to happen if all we do is come and attend service. That's going to take place 
because of, of, of Sunday school classes where we get to know each other. It's going to take place because of connect groups. It's going to take place because of overcomer group. It's going to take place when we gather together and try to do life together that, that they would know you so well that they just know when something's wrong. They can see it on your face. They know it almost immediately. Uh, and the question is, are you, are you taking that risk? Are you fighting for that in your life? Because some of us are living in discouragement only because we won't let anybody in where we can actually receive encouragement. Since we have, then let us. Now we don't have time to do the rest of this text, but the next part tells us that there's no other offer to take. If we, if we turn our back on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and try to rely on anything else, then there's nothing more for us except for judgment. That's, that's what he says. And then he describes this group of people that, that knew each other so well that they were willing to do prison together. They were saying, man, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to go to prison with you. That's how much they loved each other. And then it says that we who are in Christ are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who persevere to the end. Okay. Since we have found this grace in Jesus... Since we have a Savior who has paid it all, paid for all of my sins and all of your sins, let us draw near to Him with a sincere heart. What stirs my affection? What robs me of my affection? And let us hold fast to the truth that His grace is what paid the bill and that you didn't do anything. So, so don't walk with a limp to show everybody how, how rough life has been. You haven't done anything. And let us stir up one another to love and good works. And how does that occur? By doing life together. Even though it's messy. And even though it's risky. Would you bow your head? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about what it means and what it looks like to follow you. I pray, Lord, that you would, just, you would just keep us away from the tabernacle and keep us away from useless religion. Keep us away from man-made rules. Lord, keep us in your word. We know that your word tells us what is right and wrong, what is sinful and what is holy. And, and so, Lord, we want to live that way. But I pray, God, that you would just hear your call to us and that, Lord, that as we leave this place for the next number of weeks and even months, Lord God, that, that the thought on our minds would be, what stirs my heart toward you, Jesus? What, what makes me want to press into you? What makes me want to love you more? And also, Lord, that we'd be thinking about what is it that's robbing me of my affection for you? What steals my time from you? I pray, God, we'd really begin to work through how you've, uh, how you've created us and so that we can draw near to you with a true and sincere heart. And I pray, God, that you would always keep the cross fresh in our minds. And I pray, Lord, that with everything in me, that, you would, you would, that, that we would learn to stir up one another in love and in good works and that we would fight for genuine community and genuine life with each other. And I pray that this would be a place where, where it would be true that we are, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who press on. So since you have, then Lord, let us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, then 
Nobody looking around. I just, I, I don't even know what kind of a call for prayer to offer you other than just simply to say, you know, maybe some of you never thought in terms of thinking, okay, what is it in my life that makes me think about Christ and press into Him and love Him more? It's always been about right and wrong, but that you want to go beyond just right and wrong. You want to go into, you want to press in, you say, I want to know, I want to take some time and examine what is it that stirs my affections for Jesus? And then you say, I want to pursue those things and you begin to examine your life and say, I want to know what, what is it that robs me? What pulls me away from Christ? And I want to run away from those. Whether, whether it's a sinful thing or not, it's something that's not good for me, so I want to run away from that. If that's you this morning, you say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me because I want to begin this journey. I want, I want, to, I want to begin to pursue those things that stir up my affection for Christ. And I want to begin to run away from those things that rob me of those same affections. And you say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. Would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Yeah, they're all over the place. Lord, you see our hands. Maybe those that are watching on the live stream are, are saying, I need prayer too. And Lord, you know our hearts. And our hearts, in essence, Lord God, we just say, what we're saying, Lord, is I want to draw near. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. And Lord, in the process of doing that, help us to see those things that stir our hearts for you and the things that rob us. And, and God, in that process, help us to remember that your word and, and, and time and prayer is essential to that. But God, also help us to remember that a big part of that process is doing life with other followers of Jesus. So God, give us the courage to step in, get involved in a small group, and then to begin to, to build trust to the point where we can open up and be honest about what, what's going on. That we get to know each other so well that we would just know when somebody's hurting. We would know when they need encouragement, that we would see that because we know one another so well. And in the process of it all, God, we just want Jesus glorified. And we want to know you, Lord. Since we have this great high priest, since our, the penalty for our sin has already been paid, then, Lord, let us draw near to you. Let us draw nearer to you than we've ever been before. And let the light of Christ shine through us, Lord God, in a dark, dark world. We pray it in the, in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.